what we are seeing is effectively that our human development thesis has stalled, yet our machine development thesis has been escalating. And I think what we're about to enter is a new period of human development. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. In these conversations, we make sense of what's next. Join me, my co-hosts and my guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hi listeners, Stina Heikele here, co-host of this episode with Simone Cicero. We talked to Indy Johar, architect and co-founder of Project Zero Zero, and most recently, Dark Matter Labs. Indy is probably also well known to many listeners from his role as non-executive director of the WikiHouse Foundation, and has, on behalf of Zero Zero, co-founded multiple social ventures, like Impact Hub Westminster and Impact Hub Birmingham, and serves many different advisory and teaching roles. You'll find more information from his bio in the show notes. Indy is a really great thinker when it comes to going beyond the corner shop-sized social transformation initiatives to explore the next generation of institutions living at the edge between public, open, and private. In this conversation, we explore what he thinks will happen to organizing, institution building, and human potential as we move beyond the information age towards an era where building capabilities for anti-fragile institutions is key. Please enjoy this rich conversation with Indy Johar. Hello, everyone. Today we are uh, here with uh, my co-host, Stina Hekila. Hello, everyone. And uh, with uh, my uh, long-time uh, friend uh, and uh, inspiration, I would say, Hindi Johar. Good morning, Hindi. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. So, Hindi, we could discuss really lots of things with you, but uh, there is a you know an opening question that we have been thinking about. And uh, uh, lots of the work we are doing uh, these days uh, in trying to understand how do we uh, reshape organizing uh, for the times we are living uh, deals with, uh, um, you know, this transition that uh, we are uh, living in, in the information age. And uh, the question that we, we believe uh, it's important to share with you as a start is really about how do we build institutions for the information age and, and what does it mean? Because uh, we're pretty sure it's not just a matter of uh, uh, reshaping, you know, our uh, public institutions, but it's also about, uh, uh, you know, understanding the new context where these institutions are, are being born. And uh, uh, once you also made me think about these uh, overlap between the public, the private, and the, uh, and the open space. Uh, and of course, all, all these uh, changes in cultures and also in constituencies that uh, uh, need to be part of this conversation. So uh, what, what are your ideas at, uh, at today about this, this topic? So firstly, delighted and thank you for inviting me. Um, I think there's multiple aspects to this conversation. And I suppose the way we've been looking at it is that in a way, it is not just the information transition. It's a transition from what I would call the way we organize bureaucracy, right? I, I, so I would say that the big transition we're in the middle of is, so we were historically in the Renaissance and other periods operating in a worldview where the world was seemingly infinite. And the world seemed infinite. And the certainly the Western European perspective was you know, there was no edge of territory. Uh, and by implication, it meant that actually we had to create a new way of seeing the world. In an infinite world, what you create is silos. You put things into in vitro. You understand things by isolating them from the infiniteness of the world. 
So we put things into vitro, we divided, we physically divided territories into geographies with fixed boundaries called states. Uh, we did lots of things, right, over that period. And we imposed those, those theses around the world. So whether it's in indigenous nations, which were much more dy dynamic and cohabiting, we opposed the idea of physical geographies and physical boundaries and other things. But at the same time, we also did it to science, art, culture. We separated everything out. And we took the same thesis in how we understood land, how we understood everything around us. And that conceptualization of bureaucracy has been happening for a while, right? It's been happening for maybe a thousand years, and we've been slowly moving on it. And, you know, so whilst, whilst historically property rights were the remit of the few, um, actually, you know, kings, queens, and a few lords, over a period of time, we've been extending that, that worldview as our bureaucratic capacity has increased to a different worldview. Now, what I think the information age, as you put it, has done, or the age of digitized information, is change the transaction cost of bureaucracy to near zero. And at the same, and that has basically allowed for the cost of connecting information to become near zero, and as by implication, has changed our relationship in the world. So it is no longer about how we see things in isolation, but how we see things in a small world scenario. So I think over the last 30 years, what's happened is that the inter our interdependencies are now starting to feed back. And this is not just informational, it's also the fact that, for example, climate change affects the externalities we're generating. So externalities which were, you, you, you isolate something, you ex ignore all the externalities because they're outside your uh, in vitro, those externalities are now feedbacking to impact us. Now, you can talk about climate change, you can talk about uh, plastics in our water supply, you can talk about ecological destruction, you can talk about all these sort of things are now feedbacking. That feedback mechanism is enhanced by informational capacity and is thereby starting to make a paradigm shift of how we operate in an infinite world to a small world thesis. So in a way, what was the privilege of the great philosophers of, uh, of the last thousand years who would talk about your relationship in the world being about interdependence has now become an informational reality to everyone. We are all Buddhas now in a way, because in a way we are now all able to see and exist in the rea reality of being in interdependence. And that's the human potential moment that we're in. So in this transition of going from infinite world to small world, the interdependency becomes key. And that itself is, is structurally transforming our institutional infrastructures, our culture, how we see the world, all the way through. And I think that goes all the way through to corporations and everything else. So I think this is the macro transition that we're in the middle of. And you're right to say it's enabled by a new thesis of uh, a new thesis of digital information infrastructures um, and our relationship in the world. And that, uh, so I, that's the way how we conceive it and we see it at that period. And it's the democratization of this reality. So in a way, whereas historically that interdependence was a preserve of kings and queens, now it is a preserve of many and maybe maybe most people in the world and the effects are most uh, interdependent. So we're seeing the radical democratization of this small world scenario for everyone, rather than it being the preserve in the 
15th or 14th century just for the high kings and queens of the world. And that, I think, is the paradigm we're in the middle of. That's very interesting. I, I think uh, it makes me think about uh, um, this idea that, uh, you know, John Robb uh, mentioned a few days ago on Twitter when he said, we are transitioning from a politics of factions like right and left into a politics of consensus and dissent. Um, so consensus, you can, you can, you know, it feels like you can express your consensus uh, through networks on a unifying hypothesis. So when, when you talk about, for example, this democratization of a small world uh, idea, it uh, feels like uh, a, a natural response would be to ensure more coherence. So ensure more uh, centralized decisions, let's say. You know? so, so, so maybe the question that I want to share with you is, uh, uh, you know, it, it appears that a response to Uh, broader uh, recognition of uh, the importance of externalities and this feeling of a small world would be a centralized policy-making answer. So my question is, instead, uh, I'm sure that you have other ideas on uh, on the other facet of this transformation, which is more distributed and more complex, let's say. So what what are your reflections about this friction between uh, the, the coherent aspect and the complex aspect. So I think the interdependence um, actually does exactly the reverse. It doesn't drive... So interdependence does... Interdependence forces us to recognize situational realities in new ways. So I think that interdependence makes evidence the complexity of the world that we're operating in. That interdependence also makes us much more globally vulnerable to risks and shocks and other capabilities, other, other issues. So you could argue we've had pandemics before, right? This is not the first pandemic. But the reality world makes COVID pandemic rather unique is both the scale and speed that it's operated at, right? Scale, speed, and scope. The scale in terms of its global implications, uh, it's extraordinary. The speed at which it's happened in over months, two months, and then actually the scope of it in terms of its cascading effects on everything in society, how we live, how we eat, how we work, everything. Now, so that is to do with the fact that in an interdependent age, your risks are, because you're interconnected, these risks flow through the world. But they flow through situationally, right? They don't flow through uniformly. So uh, many of you will know that one of the key things that every government around the world is trying to do is keep R, which is the reinfection rate, uh, to less than one. Now, R in a country, in a whole country, will be completely different in the middle of a rural landscape to R in the middle of its capital city. So when you have uniformed, singular models of seeing the world, what you get is quite problematic analysis because you assume it to be the R average of the UK might be 1.5 right now, might be 1.6, might be 2, but the R in London will be fundamentally different to the R in the middle of uh, northern Scotland. Right? So what becomes really critical is that the situational reality is different. And so if we understand, and this is often written about, is, you know, complex, turbulent, emergent world, that underlying issue is also a function of that reality. And that's why centralized models don't work, because centralized models create averages. Centralized models create uniform thinking. 
And what you need is different ways of looking at this. You were talking about this, the decentralized and the problem, problems with averages and, um, and, you know, that you have to look at the context, um, obviously, when dealing with risks like what we're seeing now in the, in the pandemic um, and so on. And wh- what I, was, I wanted to go back a little bit to an earlier point when you were talking about this, uh, that the information and the connecting information is nearing zero in terms of transaction costs and so on. And I wanted to explore a bit with you, like, why is it slow then? <laughs> and why are our institutions uh, being uh, holding on to what seems to be inflated transaction costs when, in fact, this might not be needed in the current information environment? Well, I mean, there's two interesting questions in there. So one, I think the really scary thing is if we make the transaction cost of our existing institutions near zero, uh, and what does that do? And two, because I think, as I think as Simone was also saying previously, I think when you make institutional costs or bureaucratic costs near zero, you should you should transform the nature of the institution itself. So the real risk we have is that, so I'll give you an example. So fractional trading on the global market has meant that we have we are now you know, 70% of shares and stocks are, are traded uh, in milli milliseconds right fractions of seconds now that's basically bureaucratic costs going to near zero manifesting in that way but if 72% of stocks are trading at that speed what it also means is that there is no longer any functional shareholder governance on 72% of stocks. That means that we have now destroyed the governance architecture that was inherent in the system where shareholders had a, had a perspective on the long-term governance of that vehicle or the governance of that vehicle, would make votes, would be entitled to make votes on who the directors were. And so what we've had as a result of that process is effectively the the stock market or the machine market has um, has destroyed our governance thesis and and changed it in a way what we haven't done in the same time is transformed uh, and transform what is corporate governance into that future so this is a really classic example of where we've used the zero uh, transactional cost to arbitrage the system more efficiently, but haven't re- um, reimagined what is the institutional requirements of that new age, and that I think is one of the great delaminations we're seeing. So if you, so one of we're in this messy period where where the bureaucratic costs of the existing system are going zero, and thereby allowing for unusual or what I would call um, non-moral arbitrages <laughs> uh, of the system which is allowing the existing governance infrastructure to break down, yet new business, and I use word businesses in in brackets, new economic opportunities to unveil, which are probably, in a historic model of thinking, pretty much corrupted. So this is what's currently going on. So I think what the real problem is that to transform our institutions, we also have to transform our capacity and mechanisms of thinking. And that really isn't happening yet. And... So I'll give another way of looking at this problem. So if we look at the thesis of, say, uh, again, let's just keep going with this, right? So one way of looking at it is that, so you let's keep talking about COVID because it's kind of in everyone's heads right now. 
Um, but the thesis of COVID, i.e. the idea of a pandemic, was pretty much in every global futurologist's chart, right? It doesn't, it's not like this was not known. This was well into our predictions, it was well understood, yet somehow it has still taken the world completely by surprise. And one of the theses I would say is that the pandemic is an example of how future risks, right, things, activities in the future, could manifest in the present. And what we didn't have, so we had lots of people thinking about that, but we were never connecting that to our to those risk charts were never connected to our treasury. So our treasury functions were never saying, what is our allocation of capital to manage these risks? And if we're not um, uh, allocating capital to manage these risks or investing in managing those risks, then what is our provisions, i.e. what are the capital stores that we need to be able to manage these risks? So we had a disconnect between our risk management theory and our actual capital allocation theory. And unless these two are connected, what you have is a problem, because this is a classic example where we're doing one thing, but actually isn't connected yet. So this is a really simple example of our relationship with the future um, is, is, uh, is also understood only through, you know, understood through risk, but isn't connected to our capital allocation theory. The second thing is in our relationship to the future. So we say, how does the future present risks to the present? What we don't talk about sufficiently is how does the present limit the risks of the limit the possibility or introduce risks for the future. So, what is it that we are doing now? How does that define and reduce possibilities for future citizens of humanity? Now, so this other model of risk has no mechanism of being manifest in our technological in our in our institutional hardware. So, what I'm trying to say there is these are both conception problems. These are technology problems. There's also arbitrage going on very clearly to create new monopolies and new powers and new value in a way that destroys, and that's why we're seeing, I would say, structurally a breakdown in our governance economy because those arbitrage create legacy independencies. So people are now dependent on the arbitrage to survive and to create profit. So actually unwinding it is very difficult. So I think we have to see it from this kind of multidimensional perspective that this isn't a simple transition, it's a complex transition. And I'll keep going with this just with one final example. So if we look at the thesis of say property rights, right? So if you own a piece of land in its conceptual thesis, and it's not true because you have lots of other regulations on it, in its conceptual thesis, you enslave that land to your needs, right? That land is enslaved to your needs. And I use that word very particularly because I would say ownership is a thesis of enslavement. Now, historically, that language has always been, oh, ownership, make sure you look after things. Ownership makes sure you look after the inherent value of things. The reality is that's not true because you can own something, but you can be instrumentalized. So for example, if you're a farmer, you can own a piece of land, but if in order to make day-to-day living, you have to destroy that land slowly because that's the only way you can survive, that is inherently what you do, right? So the idea that ownership somehow magically equates to stewardship isn't true. So what we have to start to do is think much deeper uh, about this in terms of actually saying, and we also know that ownership only optimizes your interests. It doesn't optimize the interests of bees. It doesn't uh, optimize the interests of flowers, 
trees, all sorts of other ecosystems that cohabit that land with us. And in the cohabitation, which is critical. So I think I think that's a really great example of our thesis, the stories we tell ourselves, you know, uh, 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 sort of my, my house is my castle, all these sort of narratives that have been borrowed to us from the lands of kings, how they manifest in stuff like property rights, how they enshrine a thesis of our dominance on the landscape and our single utility of the landscape and how that utility is then optimized and extrapolated to destroy the value of ownership, turning us into instrumentalized actors in that reality, which means that we are destroying inherently the assets that we own because actually those are the incentive systems that are created on it. And our governance architecture just can't deal with it. Yeah, I love how you how you weave these complex thoughts together. Thank you, Dan. Uh, I have a quick uh, reflection to offer. Um, so, from your word, I, I get that uh, first of all, we have an institutional failure of the bureaucracies that are supposed to be the stewards. You know? so, so you said that very clearly. You explained that very clearly with the pandemic. You know, it sounded like an institutional failure because we knew the risk, but we didn't allocate the capital. And uh, on the other hand, you also said uh, ownership is not the stewardship. So. Uh, you are questioning the idea that uh, the individual or the small player can really uh, take over this institutional role. Uh, so uh, may I offer a reflection that uh, maybe this is exactly the space where these new institutions are going to uh, be needed. So uh, uh, it looks like, you know, to me, it, it brings to me the idea of the commons that, uh, you know, for example, people like uh, Michelle Bowens are working on since like ages now. Uh, uh, um, So, so is this local, landscape-related, community-related space uh, possibly a space where this new institutional layer uh, is going to be invented? Yeah, I mean, yes, though I resist uh, theses of the local. I, I, I think I prefer commoning to commons. <laughs> um, and this is, I think, really critical. So I think a lot of our thesis on the commons is based, based on bounded thinking. So it sort of, uh, like the individual is a bounded act, the commons is a bounded act. That forest over there, that water uh, pool over there, which has us as key stakeholders. So in the act of creating a commons, you create an in-group and an out-group. Now, I think that's a very industrial idea. It's an idea that belongs to the 19th century, rightly so. It was a counter thesis to the market, but what it creates is a same, uh, it's got the same intellectual framework as the bounded, siloed model of thinking of industrial age. Because the reality is the commons failures that we're seeing are global commons without bounded systems. Um, and I think that is, I think, requiring a different thesis. So when, for example, we pollute the air, it is not only the three people that sit next to me that are polluted, uh, it is also the whole world that's polluted. So it is, not, it is an unbounded and interconnected commons that I think we have to deal with. And I think this is a philosophically important point because I think much of localism conversations that we see end up being about saying, how does a local deal with these problems and how do you create new bounded models of ownership or thesis or cooperative? Now, what I prefer about the commons is, and this is where a lot of the work that you're doing, and I think the trajectory that we're on, 
of you know, uh, distributed ledgers and various other technologies is they are opening up a frame of allowing for local global accountability in a radically transparent way, in an unbounded way, in an unbounded way exploring how we relate to the commons. And that's why I prefer the thesis of a commoning economy as opposed to the commons, because I think DLTs transform that relationship of does everything have to operate in that same format. So that's one thesis that I would really put onto the table. Now, I do think we're going to see the shortening of supply chains, shortening of material goods transfers because of actually the efficiency uh, conversations. I do think we're going to see different forms of relationships forming. But I'm less, I think long term, short term, I think we're going to see the rise of nationalism and other things. That's to deal with uh, complexity, uh, that's to deal with vulnerability. And in vulnerability, people return to defensive positions. Um, but long term, if, if as a human civilization we're going to survive, I think what we have to talk about is a new global interdependence. And that's that, that non-competitive economy, or what I would say, there's a class of value in the world which is only unlocked if we're post-competitive. So I would say commons is a post-competitive infrastructure, um, as is data as is probably machine learning. So we've got a whole section of, of DLTs there, post-competitive post economy. So there's a whole new infrastructure being built for a post-competitive economy, which I think is going to be vital to that transition. I'm not saying everything has to be post-competitive. I'm saying we're building a whole new tranche of the economy that is not organized on com- competitive economic thesis. And that foundation creates that possibility. So I would say there's something else coming. I don't know what the language is, but I, if, we, if I was to play with the words that you're saying, I would say it's a new commoning economy, and it's probably global in that infrastructure play. Indy, do you have uh, do you have any ideas on uh, jumping a little bit into the foresight part, let's say, you know, how, uh, how this is possibly playing out? Um, this is going to be a, this, tra- this transition. How is it going to be? So is it going to be a chaotic one? Do you do you believe that the existing institutions can play a role into that, both the private and the public? Um, so who is going to be... Uh, how is it going to be happening? How is it going to happen? Gonna, sorry, how is it going to happen? Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, let me look into my crystal ball. I, I, I mean, I don't claim to be a futurologist. I mean, I can tell you what, what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. Um, I think, I, I think, firstly, you know, if we talk about the future in that sense, I would say COVID-1 is a trigger. Uh, two, it's a probe into our vulnerabilities. So our economies that were designed for efficiency are found to be fragile, are found to be brittle and are breaking. Um, I think what we're going to see is a transition in our what we value from being around efficiency to anti-fragility. Uh, at the same time, what we're going to see is as we make that transition, uh, short term, we're going to see, uh, so I think it's Germany that's looking at how you relocalize medical production. So we're seeing state terrorism and other effects starting to be, you know, state, not state terrorism, state piracy, where where students are, where states are effectively uh, stopping PPP equipment being transferred. So in a resource-constrained environment, as we receive more shocks, we're going to see smaller cells start to emerge, which will create in-and-out groups. 
some economies will fall into that trap. Some economies will no longer fail, no longer be able to govern. Societies will no longer be able to govern. So we'll see the rise of Haiti-type nations around the world. Some economies will become hyper, hyper, uh, what I would say, introverted and defensive uh, into their positions. And then some societies and civilizations will make global pacts or transnational pacts uh, for development. And they will create new, larger uh, frameworks, perhaps in a fundamentally different way to the European Union, which created a framework in a very particular way. But I think when we talk about new models of interoperability, new alliances in a digitally advanced institutional economy. So imagine if the European Union had been built fully digital up. What would have been our norms? What would have been our mechanisms or even some of the most contentious acts of how much borrowing can happen in completely different formats? So I think what we'll see is a new form of interoperability and new interoperability packs, new models of growth packs, which will, and I don't mean growth as in GDP-driven growth, but I mean growth as in much a richer form of civilization growth that I think can be dealt with and can be talked about, which will be a combination of psychological growth as well as new form of cognitive emotional economies growth, uh, higher levels of circular economy, low level material waste, and thereby low level of material, uh, high level of material resilience in the economy. So we'll, we'll see a reconfiguration of those economies. So I think we're in a very messy period where I think we'll see multiple states coexisting, multiple models of the future coexisting, um, and some real risks uh, at the same time. And the thesis I would say is that we're a, we're entering not an age of just the pandemic, we're entering an age of risks. And we'll see these risks cascading uh, through us. And I think too often we try to design the future uh, in a very simplistic way. And I think what we have to design the future at an institutional level is for building its capacity to be anti-fragile. And I think it's the institutional capacity to be anti-fragile and to build rapid. So a lot of the work we're doing is on, you know, how do you design, uh, how do you do rapidly build lead markets? Rapidly building lead markets over four or five months to new goods, new products. Because in, you know, let's for a moment ignore the market as it's been currently described. A market is a distributed, uh, decentralized supply-demand matching infrastructure. It, it reduces or it distributes the knowledge infrastructure requirements and data infrastructure environments to make it possible. It's an extraordinary idea in its thesis. I think we're going to see new, new digitally advanced, machine learning advanced, market infrastructures coming to play, which are going to actually open up some really radical possibilities into that thesis. So I think there's a whole bunch of stuff happening on that side, which I think will ch challenge these possibilities. Okay, thank you. Sina, uh, do, you, do you have the question, right? Yeah, I had um, a question related to what you, you were talking about, the post-competitive economy, and then you also mentioned this richer civilization growth, and I think that's really interesting. I've heard some previous talks that you have made about this transition from the idea of labor to the idea of work. And I'd love for you to, to expand a bit on, you know, what happens to the humans uh, in this transition? Because clearly, also, as we, we start to make our way, not past, let's say, but like in this transition that we're living right now, uh, a lot of attention is going to be towards jobs. And a lot of people have already lost their jobs, and we have no idea how to deal with this massive scale of unemployment. 
and the risk is here that we we really focus on the wrong things in in the recovery and try to artificially uh, you know keep things in business yeah I think that's a very clear and accurate analysis I think I think the challenge that we face uh, so I, I, so I can just tell you what what we're thinking about this um, uh, so on one hand, you're right, job losses. We're going to see, we've already seen 22 million people lose their jobs in the US in under four weeks, and that will probably most likely carry on increasing. Um, we've seen massive job losses around the world, whether it's India, projected numbers are something like 160 million, maybe even more. Uh, and lots of these things are happening around the world. And across Europe, although the figures aren't being made transparent yet, I, I assume they're going to be similar sort of percentages. Um, and to just to give a figure, I think the projected job losses in the U.S. are perhaps even higher than the Great Depression. The speed of the job losses is unprecedented, right? Now, there's two aspects to that. One, I think it's worth recognizing that some of those job losses are as a result of fragile industries that were at the end of their life cycle as well. Some of those job losses are accelerated by the fact that they are they were legacy industries that were just no longer viable, and so as I've said, but they're also uh, as a result of there's another dimension to look at this is that I think psychologically what we will be buying and what we will be consuming will be fundamentally different in the next stage. So you know if you look even back into the uh, sort of the Great Depression and we've been looking doing some research around this is buying patterns changed. So buying patterns became much more conservative. So people became much more thrift-orientated because these sort of psychological shocks and trauma change buying patterns. People will, I think, buy less and less for what I would call, there'll be, there'll be a burst of psychological buying. So in any form of recession, people buy psychological goods to, to you know, chocolate and other things go up. But what doesn't go up is white goods. What doesn't go up is other sorts of certain intermediary goods. What will happen almost certainly is that we will buy for for thrift, which will be things that add value to our lives, things that transform that. And the other thing to just, and sorry, I'm going to take a bit of a divert, but I think it's important, is that I think we must be really clear that the transition we're seeing is the transition between the power of markets, the power of government, the power of households and the power of civil society. And all these things are reconfiguring. So the household is becoming more important as we all recognize that our ability to live and be safe and be evident in our house is such a primary capability that was largely masked away that we're going to see a rebalancing to how we build the care economies around us to be able to survive. At the same time, what we're recognizing is much of the market hubris was just that market hubris and the power of the state is being reestablished. At the same time, what we're seeing is the relationship between market and state starting to be deeply questioned. Is there such a thing as a private economy? Or is the private is it actually just an just a, an economy to which everything must be, have public value? It might be independent of state, but it's still a public good economy. So we're seeing a new, you know, the best quote I've seen is we're all China now. Where where the kind of thesis of public and private, which was a divisional thesis, a silo division thesis is no longer functional in an age when the interdependence becomes more critical. So are we moving into a different thesis? And I, you know, just to 
So if some of our friends and listeners will be saying, I'm advocating the China model, I'm not. I'm not advocating any model. I'm saying, I would argue that the individualistic model of Western societies focus on the primacy of the individual versus the collective model of, uh, of many Eastern societies are both problematic because both are bounded system models. Individual as a bounded system, collective as a bounded system. Both create in and out groups. And I think the thesis we need to look for is an interdependence model, which is fundamentally different. I don't think we're seeing that yet played out. So just to come back, so I would say that we are in, so that is a major transition that we're on in terms of actually our economic thesis. Now, going deeper, I would say that one of the things that we need to bear in mind is that as a result of technology, as a result of other things that are in play, what we're seeing is the destruction of procedural uh, the procedural labor economy, the the role of humans as managers of process, as operators of process, um, that is increasingly being automated, whether physically or through algorithms or through actually uh, sort of any form of process mechanisms, uh, and it's being it's being that procedural economy using rich forms of data is much more higher precision than humans could ever make it. So I think one of the big disruptions, and generally people would say that's automation, fine. So what we're seeing is a huge swathe of automation, which I think will increase in this thesis as people start to move towards uh, sort of, in a way, capital allocation or capital-focused uh, investments. Uh, and so we'll see a whole swathe of automation. Now, what that throws up is that the human contribution of the economy has to be fundamentally different. So if you go back to the 1840s, 1800 to 1840s, the Engels pause, as it's called, there was a 40-year period in the Industrial Revolution where human wage, sort of human wages or wages for human and the return on capital delaminated. Return on capital carried on going higher, human wages flatlined. I think at a macro level, we're in that same period. And the, the COVID crisis has crystallized that reality, where what we are seeing is effectively our human development thesis has stalled, yet our machine development thesis has been escalating. And I think what we're about to enter is a new period of human development. And historically, we've done this. Our investment into schools, industrial schools for everyone, was a thesis that we knew that human development had to be at the center of it. So the British turning around investing in schools to make them better bureaucrats, i.e. procedural economy people, um, was effectively a foundational keystone to the economic growth thesis that we saw. Now, I think we're at the same pivot point, yet the thesis no longer is around procedural work, i.e., you know, getting kids to turn up at nine and go to sleep, go, you know, go do, do six hours of lessons and then go home at three. It's not about the procedural capabilities of, of, of children, but actually on the new psychological capabilities of children. And so psychological development, which is at a societal scale, not an individual scale, it's at a societal scale, is actually the premise of the future, in my view. And that psychological development is actually about how we perceive ourselves, ourselves, our relationship with other people, our relationship with the cosmos, and it's about creating the foundations for that to be progressive out but to be a developmental theory. And there's lots of much more brilliant people than me who've spoken about this that I think we should be looking at. But I think that has to be at the anchor stone of that thesis. And that's about building, giving us the capabilities to deal with risk, the capabilities to be creative, the capabilities to be emotionally intelligent, the capabilities to be collaborative, the capabilities to learn. It's those foundational 
goods that I think we're going to be focusing on. And that's going to change us to not focusing on telling people how to use a computer. That's easy. That's a YouTube problem. What is, what is more difficult is having the capacity and the capabilities to do it. And that's where I think the future of our institutional developments like schools and universities and any learning platform, right? So most corporations at the, at the CEO, at the executive level will be learning platforms is going to be about building the psychological development infrastructure for that group of people. What what you talk about, like this new space of uh, uh, human for the human development thesis, and where we can really escalate that, uh, um, sounds like uh, uh, sounds like actually uh, the question is how how can uh, should we frame it maybe as as an entrepreneurial opportunity? So so I have a couple of points that I would like you to expand a little bit more. So one is what are the Uh, fields, uh, let's say, what are the aspects of human uh, experience that uh, will create this space for uh, human development and, and, and entrepreneurship? Uh, so, so what are we going, you know, what kind of things are we going to build uh, um, from this perspective? So I, I get that a lot of what you spoke about is about care. So I, may, I can imagine, you know, how we care about our, for example, our food or our Uh, elders or our kids uh, um, uh, or our personal uh, services, let's say. And uh, on the other hand, what are these capabilities that you are talking about? So, uh, you know, we, we touched a lot about uh, the topic of education in, in, in previous uh, episodes because we, we believe and the impression is that to build these new spaces, to create these new institutions uh, where really the human can develop itself, uh, uh, we need uh, new tools, new, new psychological tools, new, new skills. As you said, they are not just uh, uh, YouTube problems. So, so, so what are the skills, the capabilities, the psychotechnologies, as uh, uh, Verveki sometimes uh, calls them, and uh, what are the fields where we can express uh, this uh, human development potential and entrepreneurship? Simone, I think it's a great question. And I think I'm always conflicted by this question in two different ways. There's kind of a split personality aspect to me on this. So on one hand, I think we have to build the, the infrastructure and the conditions, and I love your term about psychotechnological tools, to build the capacity of humans to unlock this future. At the same time, we have to build new things and new ways of looking at things itself, the world itself around us. And one of the things I'm sort of, and I, I don't, and I think your point around these things is that there'll be multiple there'll be multiple realities so okay let's talk about this one way i think our cities are designed not for psychological development our cities are fundamentally designed for transactional optimization human transactional optimization actually uh not even material transactional optimization and That thesis has been very good for a while. Yet, there's a brilliant book called Slow Down, which is talking about how human development is slowing down, demographics, everything else. Now, why that I think that's critical is that our thesis of human development has been f firmly up to this date, focused on transactional efficiencies. So what we've been doing is building cities which are focused on greater physical density of habitable rooms, you know, ease of buying things, so making sure you can have a shop, get access to services, school, other things. So what we try to do is create the efficiency of transactions through density. 
But what none of that does is talk about how you build the capacity for human development in a different format. So we already know that schizophrenia, for example, is twice as more twice as likely in urban environments than rural environments. We already know that if you sleep next to a busy road, you get huge amounts of you get huge amounts of uh, uh, sort of persistent levels of stress, which manifests in your bloodstream as cortisone, which actually actually produces your length of life and other things. So we know that there are you know so there's you know we're talking about quiet zones, super quiet zones. We also know that density doesn't build better relationships. So the thesis of our offices, so, you know, you and I probably worked and I was part of building some of the Impact Hub network. Um, and what was very evident was that actually we kept saying, oh, co-working is great. It builds communities and relationships. Actually, it wasn't the co-working that was doing it. It was the community building that was doing it. The co-working was actually probably, and all the data is now suggesting, is actually reducing communications. Uh, so what we've got is, you know, communication in an open plan office reduces, doesn't increase. Actually, what people need is greater reflective space. So when was the last time you walked into a city and went, uh, you know, so when did you give yourself to walk into the middle of a city and sit in an empty square and have the capacity to reflect? And we have optimized ourselves for transactions, not for deep, complex thought. So our innovation thesis and economic thesis has been entirely focused on efficiencies of transaction, not deep, complex innovations, nor actually the kind of complex, rich iterations that are possible in high-performance human societies. So I think the key, one of the key foundations, and certainly one thing we're very deeply interested in, is a structural transition in our city. Then the same thing applies to our food groups. So if you look at our food systems, our food systems are designed to give a calorific content at best or psychological goods at, at, at worst and psychological drugs at worst, sugar, all these sort of things. What they're not there to do is provide us nutrition. And so what we've seen over the last X number of years is that, and you're living in Italy, so you're slightly privileged, but for the rest of us, um, we've seen a structural decline in our nutrition quality. And I think that becomes a key thing in that reality. So our food systems, you know, they're designed for calorific optimization and for psychological dependencies, sugar, carbohydrates, rich carbohydrates, sort of short, short bud carbohydrates. They're not designed for our cognitive emotional capabilities. They're not designed for any of this, this stuff. So we over a period have been optimizing our food systems to a very particular model. Now, what that's meant is the cognitive decline. So the, if you look at we're seeing food nutrition decline around the world. And Simone, as I said previously, uh, in a different moment, was that you know, you're living in Italy, so you're slightly privileged. But in many other parts of the world, we're seeing our food systems, actually nutrition systems decline. And the current predictions are, as a result of this decline, we will see cognitive performance declining as well, up to 20 IQ points in parts of the world. Now, 20 IQ points is the difference between a scientist and not a scientist. So what we're seeing is that that this de-optimization of, say, our food systems, our urban environments, and I can keep going to, to, to even the nature of the economy that we buy. So, so much of our economy is focused on building our psychological goods to 
address the deficit of of work and what I would say the purpose in our work and the creativity and the foundational capabilities in our work. So I, I wrote about this a little bit, which is that you know people often talk about actually you know our, our consumer economy, and I would say the problem is not a consumer economy. The problem is a malconsumer economy. We are consuming things that are not even good for us, and they're not even good for the society around us. And why is it that we're consuming those things? And I think one of the reasons we're consuming those things is because actually the nature of the work that we do requires us to be dependent on psychological goods to fix the holes that the work that that we do gives us. So if our work is not psychologically fulfilling, then what we do is we buy goods which fill those psychological holes. And so most of our consumer economy is actually based on filling those holes. It's not actually filling, it's not the distribution of innovation, it's not the distribution of innovation which makes us better humans, smarter humans, more more cognitively smart, highly more emotionally rich. That's not the reality. It's actually filling cognitive holes. So I think when you look at this structure as a structural transition, you can pretty much unpick every part of our segment chain and start to see how it would be re-engineered and re-optimized for a new for a new world. I don't know if that starts to give you a flavor of the possible yeah, in the table. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think this image that I that I get from this conversation is cr- is critical. No, so this idea that the current institutions need to be, uh, sorry, need to build a new institution that is dealing with creating the conditions in the process terms, like you said before, the conditions for these new things to emerge, and uh, I see that as a crazy hard political challenge because this sounds like a political project. So my question now, probably as, a, as we, we get into the final part of this conversation, but um, how do you see this political project emerge? And is there a possibility that uh, uh, as we realize that uh, uh, this is a small world and uh, uh, we need to get there, uh, this becomes the common political project of our global uh, community, uh, given that uh, all these is going to play out at the local level. So, so it's really challenging, you know, from the political perspective or from the praxis that we need to a- adopt as, uh, you know, uh, governance entities and, and uh, interest groups uh, in, in the world. Yeah, I mean, you're right to say it's a political project in some senses. I actually think most of the deficits are in our bureaucratic, uh, is a bureaucratic problem. But I think you're right to say there is a foundational problem that our politics is not able to handle it. So let's let's talk about that. So, I mean, um, if, if all three of us went up to the Starship Enterprise and you were Captain Simone and we were chatting and we look back at the moment now, I think we would look back at disgust at uh, what we thought was good, right? So when we know that uh, everyday micro-violence, whether it's abuse or whether it's racial violence in other formats, reduces people's lives by up to 10 years, right? So yet we don't account for this micro-violence because it's not a knife, but it's a persistent micro-violence that does that or everyday noise levels which do that, or everyday uh, sort of uh, sort of disturbances at night as a result of uh, night pollution, light pollution. When we start to know these realities, which are scientifically backed, yet we do nothing, right? Starts to show that, that we, have a, we have a gap between the science 
and the policy landscape and the policy Overton window. And that gap is now significant, I would argue. What we know and what we can create political logics around is actually significant. And that, that, that gap is now a quantum gap, uh, not a quantum, a significant gap. Now, on that basis, let's keep going. So I, I loved your point about how we are polarizing perhaps into, was it consensus and consensus building societies and... And dissent. Dissent and consensus. Absolutely. That's just uh, two difficult, different yeah. political... Uh, yeah. I think it's a really lovely point. So so I think consent is, is a f- function of certain things and dissent is a function of other things. And I would argue, and how I interpret it, and I haven't read the theory, is that most of our arguments are not, no longer based on fact or factual truths or whatever kind of idea of some form of logic model, but they're based on emotive responses. And the emotive responses are a function of the preconditions of our reality. So if we've created a society which is deeply precarious, if we've created an economic model which makes people vulnerable, that vulnerability manifests into the psychological space and the decision-making spaces of those individuals. So if you make all of society precarious, then the thesis of psychological dissent or the kind of, in a way, uh, uh, sort of the need to, uh, to not build consensus. Consensus is a frame that you have to grow if you can create not the psychological precariousness, but the psychological security to allow people to have different opinions and build new consents through dialogue, through deliberation. Whereas the disagreement model or the dissent model is functionally if you make opinion-based decisions on the if you on precarious societies. So when people are precarious and you ask for their opinions, they will create their emotional responses to their current emotional state. And so one of the big problems is our, I think our macroeconomic thesis and our labor market thesis has engineered us to create uh, to make us more precarious and thereby seed dissent as an operating tool into that reality. Now, why I say that is societies which can actually create, reduce the precariousness and build, in, build the capacity for actually divergent thought, which can be deliberatively consumed, sort of integrated to create almost like a, a multitude of conversations, a multitude of consensuses, which are dynamic and evolving, that society will be able to evolve and adapt to this transition. Whereas societies which are deeply precarious, which are uh, are thereby building emotional response mechanisms will fall into structural models of dissent. And dissent becomes the operating mechanism of our reality. And it's because people, firstly, the dis- people often attack people saying, that's not true. You're saying X is not true. It's not about the truth. It's about the dissent, as you rightly say. And that dissent is a function of a macroeconomic thesis macroeconomic conditions that we generate in society. So I think that is a very powerful case, as you rightly say. I think that is going to create the basis of the political landscape. So the political landscape is going to be a function of those macroeconomic theses uh, and those architectures that we've talked about. And so the politics of being able to create deliberative dialogues and multitudes of conversations which can evolve will be one society versus another society where the tools and the politics of dissent will be the mechanisms of power. And I think this is the reality that we're facing. 
And um, yesterday in in Italy, the the the, the PM addressed the uh, the the Parliament, and uh, he made the distinction. You know, he clarified the distinction between uh, uh, doxa and episteme. So basically, he, he told the Parliament uh, that there is opinion and there is a, a scientific, let's say. Uh, agreeable uh, set of uh, informations that the information that uh, somehow manifests as a truth, uh, uh, as something that is true and something we can agree on. So I see some kind of double mind or, or possibly a strange uh, co- 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 situation where at the same time uh, we agree that we need to overcome materialistic and rationalistic thinking. Uh, because, you know, for example, this uh, idea to build these institutions that uh, in process uh, uh, fashion uh, created the condition for new stories to emerge, which is completely, you know, uh, uh, embracing complexity in thinking politics. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, uh, uh, the fact that now we deal with dissent and consensus uh, over networks somehow is pushing us to have uh, an agreement or, uh, on our global epistemic. Uh, on our global epistemic frames. Uh, I don't know if it's clear what I'm saying, but there are these two directions. No, we are, on one hand, we say, okay, we need to trust the complexity of the local by creating conditions for, for, uh, for these new institutions to emerge out of the relational uh, and local and community uh, relationships. And on the other hand, uh, somehow the fact that now we deal with networks is pushing us to find a common ground somehow and so the question is maybe where is this common ground how do we can how can we get to this common ground so that uh, uh, we, we don't end up in a world where uh, i don't know someone is going to make great things and and someone else in the other part of the world is going to end up in falling into a, a chaotic uh, situation yeah. is that even possible um it's possible i mean what I find interesting, I mean, I, I well, let's start at the beginning. I, I think um, your prime minister was saying very good things. I agree with what he was saying. But the reality is there was a, there's a key point in there. Things that we agree are true. Agree. Uh, the foundational problem is not the logic problem, i.e. if this and that and that. The foundational problem is do we agree? And what are the incentives to agree? And it is not, and and the, the the trust infrastructure required, or the legitimacy infrastructure required, to make that actually a shared truth. So I, I think that the the problem is that we keep keep saying over and over again scientific truths, but the reality is that was constructed in a world where we had a huge amount of governance architecture which created some of those realities. And maybe it wasn't even fit for purpose. So in one hand, we had governance architecture. Maybe we did, maybe we didn't, but we perceived we had it. But that governance architecture is broken down, possibly true. At the same time, we've had human development where our cognitive capabilities to under, get access to that information and our informational capabilities to access that information has massively scaled and the massive scaling and the ability to produce that information and counter information. So I think the reality is that is that we haven't built the mechanisms to create agreeability. And I think there are what I'd call settings to create agreeability, which is like I was saying, if you create precariousness, then you're not going to create the space for deliberative consent. 
you're going to create the space for uh, deliberate dissent. So what is your macroeconomic? If you do, if you want that, you have to create the right pre-economic conditions. But you also then have to create the institutional landscape to allow for those agreements to be formed deliberatively, right? So uh, so how do we do that? I mean, Galileo's time, you know, we know that he was being hunted and sort of uh, for, for his scientific beliefs. So the reality is that the idea that science is somehow being this universal and everyone's agreed with it instantly is not true. So how do we start to think about this? How do we create the new scientific institutions? And this is where I think the role of citizen science and culture, all of that stuff is very vital in building a shared framework. But that's only possible on a macroeconomic, macroeconomic model, which doesn't advance precariousness, which gives people the space to be part of that thesis. So I think the ability to construct that, and then I think you know, this is all about how we create sense-making mechanisms and how do we create sense-making at a societal scale. So you know, our incentive systems in our data, our in, uh, what I would say, you know, our newspapers or our media systems are now broken. So incentive systems in all our institutional infrastructures or our, or our media infrastructures are broken because they're designed to optimize uh, false economies. So attention is the economy of a newspaper. It is not the distribution of sets. It is not the distribution of sets. So the, if the incentive of a newspaper is attention, then what you'll see is the subversion of knowledge or facts into driving attention, i.e. the rise of clickbaits. Now, that fundamentally means that we start to have a, uh, have a destruction in our sense-making capability. And if you destroy that sense-making capability, you destroy the me- mechanisms to actually create consents. So I think this this is a full stack problem that needs to be understood in a completely in a in a both a, a settings way, but also in how how we make knowledge and also how we distribute and communicate it, and also uh, how we create the incentive structures in those in, in those models. And I would argue the the biggest problem is our is that our incentive systems are deeply corrupted for a complex emergent world and are not either both corrupted or not real-time enough uh, to be able to deal with it. So I think that operates across the whole system at the level of a citizen, perhaps even at the level of a scientist, perhaps even at the level of a newspaper, perhaps even at the level of a politician. So we've corrupted the incentive systems for all those actors, which is creating the problem. And we keep blaming the citizen, we keep blaming the scientist, we keep blaming the politician, we keep blaming the actors, because actually it is in the interest of capital, or I would say, say not capital, but corrupted capital, to keep the incentive systems in their current format. And what we need to do is decorrupt the capital incentive systems in order to realign those mechanisms if we're going to construct mechanisms that allow us for distributed, dis- decentralized models of sense-making, intelligence, multitudes of conversations and new models of consent, emergent consent to be constructed. Uh, Stina, before you close uh, uh, with the la- last uh, question, I-, I-, I wanted to highlight a couple of um, points from this so, so that uh, also our listeners can, can, can get it uh, in, in their minds, I think, because this is massively important, I think, this last passage, when you said that we need to create the conditions for agreeability, you know, it's again another process politics. And... Uh, Uh, I, I feel like what you're talking about is somehow the transition between the inf- information age into what we could call, you know, uh, the sense-making age, something like that. And uh, um, 
I'm the question is what is the equivalent of the internet uh, for the sense making age? You know, because we had the internet for the for for the information age, we had the printing press for the institutional age, and then so the question is what kind of institution do we need to build? to transition into the sense-making age. And uh, this also reminded me a lot of uh, the thesis of, uh, uh, for example, Salvatore Iaconesi when he speaks about the data poiesis. So this idea that, uh, that is, this is a poietic process that we are into as a civilization somehow. And uh, it, it may deal with uh, uh, information and data uh, and how do we visualize and how we internalize what's happening uh, to an extent that we can all together be part of a sense-making uh, a sense-making process. So that that's something that I wanted to highlight and then I will leave you to, to Justina. Sorry about that. No problem. No, I mean, uh, that these are so, such big questions that it's it seems, but I wanted to try to to link it uh, to a kind of closing question also uh, 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 around how this relates to the work that you're doing so that also the listeners will have an opportunity to further explore uh, the Dark Matter Lab and how you are trying to embody this change and maybe more like engaging in an experiment of something that uh, represents what you're explaining in more macro and sort of abstract terms. So it would be interesting to hear how, how you concretely are trying to, to work with your own organizational model in a way that could somehow be an experiment to, to move forward with this. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, no, it's a, uh, so I think it's multiple levels, right? So in terms of what we do, this is exactly what we're working on. So, so we're working with Climate Kick to build uh, the long-term alliance or the long alliance, which is looking at how do societies think long-term. We're working with Century Initiative to think, you know, recognizing that democracies don't have the capacity to think uh, and operate through the long-term cycles. And that really goes back to this agreeability. In order to build an idea with the future, you have to be able to construct new models of agreeability, as, as, uh, as Simone was rightly saying. So we're doing a lot of work around that. We're doing a lot of work around how we understand civic goods. So a tree is, is currently a liability on the books of a local authority because all its environmental services are seen as free services. So what you see is actually the cost of maintaining a tree and the cost of insuring it for the damage it could cause is is the liability of a tree, which means that most trees tend to get chopped down after 10 years when they are barely mature and barely providing any of the environmental services because the optimization of the accounting infrastructure is focused on that reality. So what we're doing is actually re rebuilding the institutional infrastructure both at a county level but also at the level of how contracting level of the environmental services and building a new model of looking at that that looks at trees both in terms of carbon capture sustainable urban drainage but also in terms of human relationships so not only just financial economies but human economies gift economies of how a cluster of an urban garden could operate in different models so we're looking at these micro machined and human economies and what these sort of manifest like. So we're working with that around civic assets. And again, that's all about this interdependence. So taking away from the tree to the interdependent value it generates and how do you build the institutional infrastructure for that. At the same time, we're looking at, um, we're doing a lot of work around property rights. So how do you reimagine property rights for the 21st century, which isn't about enslaving the reality, but actually it's a lot about cohabitation. How do you start to drive some of those things? And how do you start to build new new relationships with the land as a result of that, and thereby new models of cohabitation? We're doing a lot of work around transformation of cities. 
looking at some of the thesis that I was speaking about earlier, if we take look at the scientific rationale and the the reality of our cities, how do we start to drive that deep transition of our cities to a new psychological cognitive capability sense, doing that work with Stockholm region, again, looking at through that lens, so most of that work, discussion that I was having was throughout. So we're doing all of our work is focused on these sort of missions, long-termism, uh, human psychological development, uh, transition of cities, uh, civic capital, various missions. Now, we're, the way we're organized, I think, which is, I think, the part that you're also interested in, is we've been challenging the way we're organized. And, you know, we're, a, uh, so let's also be honest, we're not perfect at all. We are, um, you know, we're, uh, we've fortunately, Grace, we've been growing um, very quickly. Um, and, but what that's meant is that uh, as a result of it, that we've got a lot of uh, pressures, but we are evolving. So we're now all, of, you know, we're a global team around the world, full time, um, approaching nearly 30 people, um, which is pretty extraordinary, all the way from friends in Dubai to South Korea to uh, in uh, uh, to Montreal. So we've got a to London, to Stockholm, to Malmo. So we've got a pretty extraordinary uh, team. Um, so the reason why that happened was that um, a, a good friend of mine and colleague, Unji, she wanted to, you know, she was having to move because her partner was in South Korea. And we sort of said, right, we're not going to, we're not, we're going to make an organization which isn't going to be about you leaving if you have to move. We're going to make an organization which is going to be radically distributed. So we've been building that, which means that, for example, we are globally distributed, but every quarter we were meeting physically for three days to actually talk about strategy and share sense making. We've also changed our pay infrastructure. So, you know, we've, uh, uh, how we reward people is based uh, on a proxy and it's a proxy not a reality but a proxy is that how old you are plus an x-factorial and the x-factorial increases uh, but it increases for everyone uniformly now that's meant to the money is almost like a universal basic income the purpose of that money is to stop you having to worry about money so we don't use it as a reward mechanism. We use it as a mechanism to stop people worrying. Sure, if some people have, at a young age, double uh, parents they need looking after, we will transform, we will try to adjust this pay, uh, this pay mechanism to reflect their reality. But that's about actually changing the discourse of how we incentivize. We don't do performance-related reviews based on your income and sort of saying bonuses because we don't want to turn financial instruments as to the incentive-making mechanisms of an institution. Uh, we are changing our contracts with our partners to, know, to not being service contracts or contracts in consultation or consultancy contracts to mission contracts. This is a mission that we want to co-entrepreneur with you or co-entrepreneur with you. So we, we're very much act as co uh, co-entrepreneurs with other agencies and other partners to build possibilities. And those contracts are we bring, we bring social capital, we bring network capital, we bring knowledge capital, and they bring financial capital or and other knowledge capital and other resources. And we fuse those together to try to hit a mission. And so often our work, way of working is different in terms of that process. Uh, we are working both in terms of some of the conceptual frame stuff and the political frame stuff, but all the all the way down to experiments and uh, some of the uh, some of the uh, sort of experiments into the real world. So that probably gives you a flavour of how we're trying to manifest some of this stuff into our day to day reality. Everything is transparent. 
Um, you know, we are sort of distributed leadership around the world. We've got people like Jonathan Lapam leading, doing extraordinary work in, in Canada and doing some extraordinary work with Mary Sophie. We've got people like Unji doing amazing work in South Korea, leading some extraordinary work out there. You've got Joost Bionderman doing extraordinary work around the city's work with Tom and other people. You've got Adam Purvis doing amazing work in Scotland with the Scottish government. So what we're building is a kind of, in a way, a kind of an infrastructure for that common capability in a 21st century way. Um, that probably gives you a bit of a hint as to what we're doing. There is a, a blog that we wrote uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, which is Letters from Amsterdam, which really goes into some of these details and some of the questions that we have and how we improve our bureaucratic infrastructure around this. So we've been doing some of that work, both in terms of what we're doing, but also in terms of how we're doing it and trying to manifest that into how we organize ourselves. And by no stretch of the imagination, I'm not saying we're perfect, but we are trying to reinvent some of these things. And it's obviously, yeah, it's it's both challenging, but, uh, but, but interesting uh, in the same format. Uh, I hope that helps. Thank you. Yeah, and we will put all this in the in the notes for the listeners to find more about the work that you do. Thank you. Indy, that was a conversation that goes beyond uh, rewarding for for me, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I think uh, also for our listeners, it's certainly going to be foundational to the work we are doing this research. And uh, yeah, I'm thankful for for being your friend. And uh, and uh, I'm thankful for for the time that you wanted to dedicate to this conversation. Uh, and I, I loved uh, having your kids around and the, and the birds and my kids that in the background were doing some uh, ugly noise. But I think our listeners are getting used to podcasting during the COVID nineteen. That uh, that's the the, the the twist that it's always in the background. So you know, thanks very much, Indy, uh, and. Uh, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to, for, for, for us to have you. Likewise, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I, to be honest, one of the reasons why I did this call was I knew we could really get into some of these issues in a deep sense. So I really appreciate your hosting these sort of conversations and I appreciate the kind of the care with which you uh, scaffolded this. Uh, so to yourself and Stina, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, to all our listeners, uh, we catch up soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Boundaryless Conversation Podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to our podcast by looking up for Boundaryless Conversation Podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for more general research updates, where you can also find opportunities for learning and free tools for you and your team to design platform strategies in these turbulent times. This podcast has been brought to you by our research sponsor, Intesa San Paolo. We want to also thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.